Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Another big story this week, there was a huge development in the Golden State Killer case. Lawyers in that case have reached a deal for Joseph James D'Angelo to plead guilty to charges of murder and rape. This would avoid a lengthy death penalty trial and instead just impose a life sentence. Victims of some of the crimes have expressed both relief and anger at this outcome. For more on this new deal in the Golden State Killer case, we'll speak to Sam Stanton, reporter at the Sacramento Bee. They've been working on this for months and months. The defense obviously was trying to avoid the death penalty, and the prosecution was trying to avoid a massive years-long trial. So they finally came to an arrangement where He'll walk into court, supposedly on the 29th, and he will plead guilty not only to the 26 um, counts he currently faces, which is 13 murder counts and 13 kidnapped for robbery counts that are associated with sexual assaults, but he also will admit guilt, we're told, in some fashion to an additional 62 counts related to other attacks over the years. It's not clear yet whether those will actually be filed as counts or if it will be uncharged counts that he has to admit to. Now, in a lot of ways, this deal makes sense. When you think about what's going on with coronavirus right now, and a lot of the witnesses and people who would be testifying are very elderly. So the logistics of going through a trial and having them come in and testify and, and go through all that would be pretty difficult. And the other thing is the death penalty in California. There's a moratorium put on, on that by the governor, Governor Gavin Newsom. So in a lot of ways, this deal does make a lot of sense. What the prosecution really wanted to do was get through the preliminary hearing. They were planning on as many as 150 witnesses over an eight-week time span. And they wanted that so that they could give the victims and the family members of deceased victims a chance to tell their story on the stand. That was very important to a lot of them. But because of coronavirus, because of all the limitations on the courts, the prelim was supposed to start in May, and of course it got pushed back to August, and it just looked like that was going to be more and more difficult. There are witnesses all over the country in their 80s and 90s who would be expected to travel for that, and it just didn't make sense. And so in terms of that and in terms of the overall cost of taking this thing to court, it just made more sense to cut this deal. One of the other interesting things about the 29th hearing and related to coronavirus as well is that a lot of times these hearings have been in pretty cramped courtrooms and they're looking for a larger venue so they can practice social distancing. They expect a lot of spectators. The media is going to be there, family and victims and family members of the victims are going to be there as well. So they're looking for a larger venue to do that as well. We're talking about possibly hundreds of people between the family members and the victims and the, uh, the media and the spectators. And so the courtrooms that we've been using have been on the first floor of the county jail building, and they typically hold a few dozen people all told, and the media are all crammed up shoulder to shoulder. It's a very cramped space. So they have been looking at odd places outside of court buildings such as Memorial Auditorium, there's been talk of the convention center. We still haven't been able to nail down 
where this is. I'm told that they're close to making a decision, but obviously it's going to require a great amount of security and a great amount of space. How do the victims and their family members feel about this possible deal? I imagine they're on both sides. I had been reading that they wanted to go through the trial because they wanted him to face the evidence. But as we'd been talking about, this deal does make some sense. A lot of them really wanted at least to see the preliminary hearing so that they could take the stand. But I talked to a couple yesterday and they understood the decision. They get that this thing, if it actually went to trial, it would be one of the biggest trials in California history. If it went to trial, it would take years. And he's 74, I believe. There's no telling how long he'd be around for something like this. So they have accepted it. They were briefed on it individually on June 1st or thereabouts and asked to keep quiet about it. But of course, words started to leak out. And there obviously weren't any vociferous objections or we would have heard about it earlier, I suspect. Sam Stanton, reporter at the Sacramento Bee, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Also this week, after President Trump signed his executive order on police reforms, Senate Republicans led by Senator Tim Scott have also introduced their police reform bill called the Justice Act. The bill aims to improve data collection about police use of force and no-knock warrants, document police misconduct, and direct the DOJ to establish de-escalation guidelines. For more on the GOP's police reform bill and hopes for a compromise bill with Democrats, we'll speak to Lee Zoe, politics reporter at Vox. The bill centers heavily on data collection and transparency. And what it's focusing on is really just getting a better understanding of how often are police using different degrees of force and how often are they using tactics like no-knock warrants in order to understand how lawmakers can craft policy that could either restrict that or address the ways that police might be abusing these maneuvers. The second piece of it is really focused on more transparency around misconduct, which we just really don't know a lot about right now. For example, a police officer could be fired from a particular job for misconduct, and that information is not provided to everyone. So that person could get rehired in a different station, in a different locality. So this bill, much like Democrats' bill, focuses on getting more information about who's gotten in trouble before and trying to communicate that to people so that they don't get rehired again. Yeah, and that's an important part of it. We hear all too often after the fact, oh, this officer had some problems already before, but they moved around, things like that. So that is an important distinction to have there. Let's talk a little bit about some of the comparisons that it might have to the House Democratic bill. There is some overlap in certain things, such as creating some type of database for police misconduct, but there are a few key differences. And one of them is about qualified immunity. That is a significant difference because qualified immunity is this legal provision that makes it really difficult for people to sue police over incidents of misconduct and get any type of result. And Democrats' bill would actually significantly limit its protections, whereas the Republican bill doesn't really address it at all. And Tim Scott, who is the lead senator on the legislation, has already said that it's, quote unquote, a poison pill for Republican senators. So not to expect too much movement on that front. When we talk about these bills that the House and the Senate Republicans and even the executive order that the president put out there, it's going to be very difficult to have this all trickle down to the state and local level where policing is done. We have 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the U.S. and everything's done on this local level. So 
the way that they're leveraging their power is through federal grant money, basically saying, if you don't meet certain standards or don't create this database or whatnot, we're not going to give you federal dollars. Is that the way all of them are working? A lot of them are working that way. That's correct. I think a key distinction you see is in Democrats' bill, for example, they have federal bans on chokeholds and no-knock warrants. And what that means is the DOJ is then able to hold officers accountable if they end up using either of those tactics. Whereas in the Republican one, they don't have outright bans, but they do use that same tactic you described of only giving out federal grant money to police stations that end up implementing these policies. That's an interesting one because there's a lot of departments across the country that have already put bans on chokeholds, things like that. So they could have maybe gone all the way on that, but they're reserving some of that. Even the president said if the life of the officer is in danger, then they could use those type of holds. So that'll be an interesting one. And hopefully they can get some type of compromise. What did they say about these uh, de-escalation guidelines that they want the Department of Justice to make? They just want something that everybody across the board can follow, right? And they want to be able to use the DOJ to basically track who at the state and local levels has actually undertaken this type of training. So you'd be able to look at like a record or a database and figure out what police stations have done it and which ones have not. It seemed that Republicans came ready with this bill. It seems like most of them are going to back this on the House side. Obviously, we know that will get pushed through the House. What do we know about any type of possible compromise? Like you said, the House and the Senate will probably pass their versions of the bills next week. The question about compromise, I think, is the bigger one about if lawmakers can keep up momentum on this issue. Unfortunately, in the past on subjects like gun reform, for example, there's been a ton of public pressure, a ton of momentum. But unfortunately, because of gridlock and the inability to find common ground, nothing ends up materializing. So the hope is that this doesn't take place again on this issue. Lee Zhou, politics reporter at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Finally this week, as calls intensify for officials to defund police departments and reallocate that money to other community services, there are some cities that can offer ideas with programs they have already implemented. One such pilot program which has already led to a drop in arrests is called Right Care in Dallas. On calls responding to mental health issues, They'll send out a team that includes an officer, a paramedic, and a social worker. For more on some of these programs going around the country already, we'll speak to John Shupi, reporter at NBC News Digital. What we set out to do was just try to look at real-world examples of what, quote-unquote, defund the police would look like. This is a concept that has remained mostly literally a concept and hasn't been explicitly applied to real-world policing or alternatives to policing yet. But... When we started to look a little bit deeper, we noticed that there were programs around the country that we could look to as guides to what pieces of, quote unquote, defund the police would look like. Some share the defund the police spirit. Others wouldn't necessarily consider themselves explicitly about defund the police, but they contain elements. And so the one that we focused on is a program that is a couple years old in Dallas in which the local Parkland Hospital, along with the police department in Dallas and fire rescue in Dallas, got together to try to figure out a solution to the problem that they had of not having enough psychiatric beds in the city and police having to respond to calls involving people who are in mental health distress. And a lot of those people end up getting arrested. 
and filling up the jails, that causing an obvious problem. So they decided to create an alternative in which a social worker, a police officer, and a medic ride in a Chevy Tahoe and respond to 911 calls involving someone in mental health distress. It's only a pilot program, and it doesn't draw money from the police budget. It's funded mostly by a grant, but it does offer a glimpse at an alternative to police simply showing up at the scene of somebody who is having a mental health crisis and using force or arresting that person. It's steering them to services that they might need. And so that is one example that we looked at, even though it doesn't necessarily defund the police. It looks at a way to use resources in a way that don't involve police responding to something that they don't necessarily need to respond to. That pilot program is called Right Care in Dallas. And that is the sort of plan that I think a lot of people can get behind. You know, as you mentioned, somebody that might be mentally ill or having some type of episode or something, you don't know what the situation is until you get there. So having that team, an officer, a paramedic, a social worker, when you get there, you can evaluate it, and the person that is most appropriate in that situation can take the lead. It could be just a social worker that needs to talk somebody down. You know, it could be a paramedic or something, somebody that can deal with a suicide attempt or whatever it may be. Or maybe if something is uh, dangerous, maybe they have a weapon, then the officer can take a handle on that. So that does sound like a good plan that I think a lot of people can get behind. And this is kind of what, at the core of it, a lot of people, when they say defund the police, this is some of those things that they want. They want the reallocation to get these right teams in place. Part of what is driving the defund police movement beyond, obviously, a reaction to you know, systemic abuse of black Americans by police. It's also trying to accomplish something that many police themselves admit to all the time, and that is that they are asked to respond to and perhaps solve many of society's problems, one of them being mental health, another being homelessness, another being drugs that they aren't necessarily cut out to. It's, it's a kind of a response to the sort of creep of police work into so many different aspects of our social safety net. And that is the spirit that right care in Dallas kind of connects into. And despite training on de-escalation and bias training, that still might not be the right thing to respond with, you know, depending on the situation, as you just mentioned. Let's talk about some of the other cities that have been working on this because these calls are going on nationally. We're seeing this play out in the media and it's being amplified right now and rightly so, but policing is such a local issue. They can make plans and Democrats and Republicans are going to be proposing plans on how to reform policing, but it's still going to be down to the state and city level for the real change to kind of start happening. This applies across the board, this concept that real experimentation in government and change often happens best at the local level. And I think what our article explored was examples of that. We also looked at a community organization in Salinas, California, which has had its own issues with public distrust of police. And this group that is called Building Healthy Communities, they consider themselves sort of more directly aligned in spirit and in ideology with defund the police. But they also told me that they do not want to come across as cutting the police out of what they do because they realize the importance of police work in the community and hope to use them as a partner. But they have successfully lobbied the local city council and other authorities to 
stop the expansion of school resource officers, police officers in schools and elementary schools in Salinas. And that is another example of efforts. And that is something that is going is being repeated around the country currently and also being planned in many cities and school districts around the country to stop or curb the expansion of school police resource officers. And that's another example of what used to be, at least in my time, school officials disciplining students has become, especially with sort of the um, proliferation of school shootings, it's become something that police have been asked to deal with. And so there's now police officers in a lot of our country's schools, and that can lead to excessive discipline, especially for minority students. And now there's this defund the police movement is now triggering a lot of acceleration of trying to get the school resource officers, police officers out of the education buildings. And there's a lot of cities that have already pledged to do that, to cancel their contracts with city police. I think Minneapolis decided to do that. Minneapolis City Council also pledged to disband their city's uh, police department. What do they plan on doing? Like when we hear that they're going to disband the police there, what do they plan on doing? We heard examples or comparisons to Camden, New Jersey, and they did something similar. They had high uh, numbers of violent crimes, all that number, all those numbers dropped when they went to, instead of a city-run approach, they did more of a county-run approach, but then costs went up, even in those programs. One of the tricks to all this, and what we tried to do in our article, is to give real-world examples, because there aren't many examples that we can look to, especially with something like just happened with the Minneapolis City Council, and expressing a commitment to actually disband the police department. The only analogy we have is what happened in Camden. The circumstances were different, but this was a troubled police department, unable to perform up to the expectations of its city. There was a trust problem. There was a crime problem. And the answer, especially to get around the police unions and the contracts and the pensions that they committed the city to having to spend, they just got rid of it and started from scratch. And although, you know, it's fairly recent that this is the change has happened, what people in Camden say is that the trust has returned and that's an important step. But in Minneapolis, to go back to your original question, the answer is to how they're going to do it is still up in the air. The details still have to be worked out. And it'll probably happen incrementally in steps, beginning with some more modest reallocating of budget money into social service programs. But then at one point, they're going to have to figure out, they say with the community's input, mostly what the new public safety service apparatus is going to be. And really, I don't think anybody knows what that's going to look like. What we saw in post-Ferguson, the death of Michael Brown and the death of Eric Garner in New York, were calls for internal reforms, which still continue. But with George Floyd, what we've seen is a shift toward no internal reforms. The police departments are not enough. We need to do something from the outside to fundamentally shift how we fund and how police departments operate and whether they need to operate at all in the way that we know them. John Chupi, reporter at NBC News Digital. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm happy to help out. and I'm happy to be here. Thank you. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.